from New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SPU, we're throwing on some jazz, bathing the room in the golden glow of nostalgia, and talking about Woody Allen's Cafe Society. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And in honor of the new year, Happy New Year. We gave serious consideration to making every film spotting SVU episode theme in 2017 Apocalypse, but you know how that goes. You start off strong with Dr. Strangelove and Mad Max Fury Road and 12 Monkeys, but by September, you're left with the postman and Matt, nobody wants that. And so instead, as a nod to the Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart, Steve Carell entanglement in Cafe Society, we're talking about movies about love triangles. But before then, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies On Demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. And Matt, you've got it this episode. What are your picks? Well, the first one you've already mentioned in the Opening to the show, it is American Honey, directed by Andrea Arnold, which is now available on demand. Uh, The latest film from Andrea Arnold, director of other fine films like Fish Tank. It is the nearly three-hour epic of Life on the Road with Star, played by first-time actor Sasha Lane, who joins up with a mag crew, a wandering group of magazine salesmen who are led by Shia LaBeouf with a ridiculous rat tail. Not since Ben... Has there been a more prominent rat tail in a movie? It's a really the whole haircut is magnificent. It's got it's a incredible. Lot going the whole look. I think he has suspenders. Oh yeah, piercings. Piercings. It's it's magnificent. It's yeah. I mean we're 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 joshing with Shia LaBeouf a little bit here, and I will do everything in my power to ensure my daughter never meets him, lest she be seduced <laughs> by his grungy charms into roaming the Midwest in a in a white van. But he's actually really good in this movie and very charismatic. And, and complicated as this guy. And it's generally a really interesting movie about our country growing up in, in America, trying to find your place in it, trying to find yourself, being attracted to someone perhaps who might be wrong for you. Um, it's good stuff. I enjoyed this movie. It's a little long, but it doesn't feel super long, actually. Um, I had a good time watching it. I had a good time discussing it with the uh, discussion group I lead at uh, every month at the Nighthawk here in Brooklyn. So this is one I definitely recommend people check out. Go for the ride with the rat tail, I guess. Uh, it is American Honey. It is available now on demand. Next up, also available now on demand, is Sully. Tom Hanks, America's bestest dad, plays America's bestest pilot, Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, the man who successfully landed a commercial jet in the Hudson River a few years ago and became an overnight national celebrity. The plot is mostly about the aftermath of the incident, where all these government agencies are investigating the crash, trying to decide whether Sully acted appropriately. And that's kind of a a non-starter of a story. I mean, spoiler alert, uh, Sully was a hero. But I think Tom Hanks is really great in this movie, as he has been in a lot of stuff lately. And the scenes where we do get sort of the flashbacks to the actual plane crash is they're really, really good. Uh, you get to see kind of Clint Eastwood still knows how to do what he does pretty well in those scenes. Uh, not my favorite recent Tom Hanks movie, but it's a hell of a lot better than Inferno. So that is Sully, available now on VOD. And finally, available on January 3rd, 
is a movie I haven't seen yet, but I'm very interested to check out. It's called Operation Avalanche. This is directed by Matt Johnson. The plot summary is as follows. In 1967, four undercover CIA agents were sent to NASA posing as a documentary film crew. What they discovered led to one of the biggest conspiracies in American history. And uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's basically about uh, finding out that the moon landing was uh, was a fiction. I'm not sure if, if Stanley Kubrick is a character in this or not. But, of course, that is an enduring conspiracy theory that man did not go to the moon. Neil Armstrong did not go to the moon, but that it was all done on a, uh, a soundstage or what have you. And that is what this film is about. It is directed by Matt Johnson. As I mentioned, he is the guy who made The Dirties, the... I believe that was also sort of a fake documentary as well. We discussed that movie way back on Film Spotting SVU number 46. Number 46. So if you want to hear us discuss that movie, you can find that conversation on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. And this is his, I don't think he's made anything in between. I think this is his next movie. So uh, Operation Avalanche, available for rent on VOD on January 3rd. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, I don't think that's a very good idea, actually. No? I'm seeing someone. Oh. I did. What, what's he like? Doug is a journalist. Oh. I just thought since you had so much free time on your hands. He travels a lot. And I really like spending my time with you. I hope that's okay. You know, you're very sweet. Have you heard that before? You have this deer in the headlights quality. Thank you. <laughs> well, if I was your boyfriend, I would not travel. Or if I did, I would take you with me. I hope he knows how to kiss you and all the rest. It's between us. On every episode of Film Spotting's streaming video unit, we put you in charge of what our next big review will be by giving you three options to vote on. And this time the options were a trio of 2016 movies, which have been making their way to streaming faster and faster. The first was Tina Fey comedy Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is now on Hulu. The second was Woody Allen's Cafe Society, which is on Amazon Prime. And the third is Michael Bay's Benghazi action movie 13 Hours on Amazon Prime and Hulu. And while Fey and Bay kept pace with each other, they were no match for Cafe Society, which won with 41% of the vote. Cafe Society is Alan's 47th feature, the latest product of the film a year pace that the 81-year-old Alan has kept up. Also the result of Alan's recent partnership with a young brand, Amazon Studios, who were also behind Alan's not very well-received streaming TV venture from earlier in the year, Crisis in Six Scenes. Uh, Cafe Society is set in Los Angeles and New York of the 1930s and stars Jesse Eisenberg as the Allen stand-in, Bobby Dorfman, a young man who arrives in Hollywood from the Bronx looking to start a career. He gets a job with his uncle, a powerful agent named Phil, played by Steve Carell, and falls for Phil's secretary, Vonnie, played by Kristen Stewart, not realizing that Vonnie has been secretly dating Phil, who is married for a year. 
When Phil breaks things off with Vani, unable to bring himself to leave his wife and family for her, Vani and Bobby start dating. And Bobby, having decided L.A. is not for him, tries to lure Vani back to New York. And in addition to this central love triangle, the film also features Blake Lively as another woman in Bobby's life, Corey Stoll as Bobby's gangster brother, Jeannie Berlin and Ken Stott as his bickering parents, and Parker Posey and Paul Schneider as a pair of high-flying New York and L.A. scenesters. It has, as is true for many Alan movies, a great cast. I just don't always understand why so many excellent actors continue to be interested in working with him. Um, Now, and this has to be brought up, I think, whenever you talk about Alan, providing we can set aside Dylan Farrow's accusations that Alan molested her as a child, a huge if, considering the fact that Uh, that Alan continues to work and that carries with it the implicit suggestion that either everyone's willing to call her a liar or willing to accept that Alan's output is just more important than the sexual assault of a child. So providing that, I still have to confess that watching Cafe Society and Irrational Man and Magic in the Moonlight and frankly, the majority of the movies Alan has made over the last few decades uh, and listening to them being praised afterwards have been some of the more consistently alienating experiences I've had as a cinephile. They do feel like, for me, ongoing evidence of this aspect of autorism that I find not very compelling, which is uh, in which searching out echoes of past work serves as a stand-in for worth. Uh, But Matt, as someone who has had more of an affinity for Alan's work, uh, where did Cafe Society stand for you? I don't think it's a stretch to say it's an improvement on his last two films. Is there more to it than that? Uh, I don't know if there's more to it than that, in part because um, I, I, while I certainly enjoyed Woody Allen a lot as a teenager, and certainly in those formative years of becoming a cinephile, he was a filmmaker I really admired, really looked up to, and... Uh, watched his movies over and over again. For his many early, people, sure. I think this is like you know his early, you know, early to middle films. Sure. You know, not the later stuff, but certainly the you know you don't need me to say the names. You know them. Those movies meant a lot to me. So I certainly followed him very closely all through my twenties and thirties. But I have to admit that I, I don't. I hadn't even seen the previous two movies before this one that you mentioned, uh, Irrational Man, and Magic, Magic in the Moonlight. Moonlight. I still haven't seen them. And, they are bad. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> And I haven't seen the Amazon series, we, partly because we had it as, I think, a listener's choice option, and it didn't win, and I just didn't get around to it. And I also heard because it was bad. So uh, I guess I can't compare it to those most recent ones. I will say that that I have, even as I was one of those people who defended him for probably longer than others in terms of some of that autourism stuff we were talking about or you were talking about in your introduction – I've had I found it increasingly hard to sort of justify some of these movies, which just feel just kind of, frankly, like half assed, you know, and there are things about this movie that feel pretty half assed to me. Overall, uh, I didn't hate it. And I think I honestly found that as it went along, I thought it actually kind of accrued a little bit of momentum and I found the ending kind of affecting and Maybe that's partly because the end of this movie is like uh, set at New Year's Eve and I watched it on New Year's Eve. So that might have had something to do with it. Maybe that was a little unfair in a positive way to the movie. It gave it a little bit of heft that it might not have otherwise had. But uh, most of what I felt about this movie is what I feel about a lot of his recent movies, which is, as you said, great casts, a couple of interesting ideas. Uh, they're, they seem, and they just, they just don't seem fully formed. They seem like he has a, a pile of ideas and he pulls one out and he makes it. 
And that's sort of how I felt about this one. And I feel like there could be a great movie in this in this material if it had been you know, like I feel like he's now sort of become a, a, a once great filmmaker who's now not a very good editor, not not of his material as a writer in terms of not being able to sort of, you know, kind of hone stuff and craft stuff. And also just his movies, they just kind of feel wandering and rambly. And I think this one, I think that's certainly part of it. That's what it's designed to be. It's kind of novelistic. It, it has all these supporting characters who have little subplots. And some of them are, are actually pretty interesting. Um, but it just... They just don't feel tight. The movies, they just, you know, you sort of, it's sort of him just riffing. And I can see why someone might like that. Uh, and we can talk about this. I sort of felt like, you know, of course, he's a very famous jazz fan. And this movie definitely made me think that in a way, Woody Allen's recent movies are kind of like a certain kind of jazz in the way that, you know, like, and it's the kind of jazz that he puts in his movies where he takes a very famous song and he puts in kind of a jazzy rendition where you recognize the melody, but then there's riffs. That's basically what he does is he takes his sort of popular melodies, his famous tunes, his, you know, the things he makes over and over again, and he riffs on them and he combines them in different ways, you know, and uh, it's a sort of a very mild pleasure at best, I found. Sure. I mean, some of the themes you could pick out are uh, New York versus L.A. and L.A. being found wanting. Yes. The Uh, nebbishy kid protagonist, the Um, ingenue, the sort of very like kind of classy and refined and beautiful woman the older man the the younger woman exactly the intellectual brother-in-law right the the nostalgia for the past nostalgia for the past the brother who's a gangster he's made several movies with like gangsters and like crime backgrounds where the crime is sort of like it's almost never played as like a drama it's always played mostly for comedy you know and that's sort of what's done here even though the gangster brother is kind of a horrible person he's murdering yes. people and they sort of play him tossing people in unmarked graves as just, a punchline yeah it's like delightfully light and ha 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 yeah it's the it's the it's like the woody allen stock character potpourri like almost all of them are in this one yeah i i, I feel like the thing about this movie and i have noticed this about multiple I, I i felt this about a lot of alan movies but i think it particularly stands out here is that it feels like it doesn't have enough distance on its main character to allow him his like growth to really like work for me i i, I have often felt with alan movies that sometimes it feels like when you listen to someone tell an anecdote and they think they're justified in the anecdote, but you listening to the anecdote you, are like, you're, you're the bad you're, guy. You're, you're the yeah, monster you're the in this equation. And I feel like a bit, like certainly Jesse Eisenberg's character is supposed to start off kind of callow and like get hurt and and grow and like learn about himself. But I feel like the movie's sympathies towards him, you, like he's a jerk. He is for, I think, a lot of it, kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. And including towards the end, when he kind of castigates uh, Vani for becoming this Hollywood phony when right. he is a name-dropping New York phony, basically. Yes. Yeah. That, like, it takes such a long time for him to get any sense of self-awareness, which I think is fine if the movie didn't seem very kind of on board with his, his points of view. Yeah, I can, I can see that to some extent. I didn't feel like he was that much of a likable character in this movie. I but sort do you of think the movie thinks he's a likable character. Well, I don't know. I mean, and maybe that's again a part of the problem with Woody Allen, where in this point in his career, it's just sort of like here's this guy, and you don't really get a sense one way or the other. Um, or maybe he's trying to be ambivalent, or maybe he's trying to. Maybe you. Maybe you're right, and it's just I didn't really get it because the movie is sort of half-hearted. Meh. And yeah. I think also part of the problem too is. 
he gets these great people in these movies, and then I don't feel they're very well directed at this oh, point no. in their career. I don't, I don't and think I, he gives them any direction at all. Right. I think, I think that's part of the problem. I think the most they're told is like walk across the screen. Right. They're given know? sort of stage direction, yeah. and that's about it. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I go back and watch those classic Woody Allen's, and I think this is the way people talked. Now, maybe they didn't. Maybe it's because I'm I wasn't alive then, and my my view of the 1970s is skewed by watching Woody Allen movies. Certainly, I think you could say he made people talk the way he wanted them to talk, like to to sound stylized, sharper and but they're smarter. Conversations, but they feel like conversations. They feel like people talking and kind of going back and forth. You know, his sort of very the way he talks is you know that's so now such a cliche. But like it, the stammering and the back and forth, it felt naturalistic in its day. I watch his movies now and everyone feels so mannered, the performances and especially the dialogue. Even in the movies of recently that I like, it's like so much of the dialogue, it just feels like pontifications from a 80-year-old man who he's put these ideas into the mouths of these characters. And sometimes the ideas are pretty profound, I think, actually. There are some interest – like I found the end of this movie pretty interesting. Uh, But I also – like getting there, a lot of the time I felt like – and, you know – Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart are, are actors who've had chemistry on screen before. Sure. They've made movies together before where I've liked them together a lot. Uh, Adventureland, even American Ultra. I like that movie. Yeah. They're good together. They are in really. That movie. They're the best part of that movie. Yeah. They, and they chemistry. feel like a cohesive couple yes. and you believe them together. And in this movie, I didn't believe them together for a second. And they seemed like strangers, even though not only are the characters by a in the movie they're not strangers by you know the first three scenes these people know each other in real life and they seem so they just seem like they're talking past each other and that's something i found in a lot of his recent work and i don't know if it's because he's not directing them or he's shooting he shoots a scene three times and that's it he doesn't shoot coverage i don't know like famously in the 80s when he sort of got into his real Woody Allen shtick, he famously like didn't shoot coverage, all these long takes. And sometimes that resulted in these very interesting long takes. In this movie, I once or twice I thought, you know, that person just kind of flubbed their line a little bit and he left it in. And it's either because he didn't care, he thought it added some sort of naturalism, or maybe he didn't have coverage. And it was something I picked up on a couple of different times, like that scene with uh, Steve Carell and Kristen Stewart at the coat check. One of the guys who comes over to talk to Steve Carell like flubs one of his lines. And I was like, boy, that's weird. The blocking is also very weird in that scene. There's a lot of like, because of the way it's staged, a lot of the characters come and kind of like have to stand with their back to the camera or like, it's very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I Something that I've, I don't know that how, when he started doing this, but something I certainly noticed in this movie and in Irrational Man as well, he, instead of being like, let me show you that this character is like, dynamic or interesting he will literally in voiceover have someone say so the character is so intelligent and in the in irrational man you know emma stone's character talking about joaquin phoenix's character and just like everyone you know to say he's so brilliant he's so this and that and you're like you start to feel that woody allen doesn't know how to write a character who would come across as brilliant and so instead he will just have in voiceover characters declare him brilliant again and again and again and i think in this movie that that's true for phil for steve character who is described multiple times as brilliant and dynamic and like powerful right and and yet 
he seems very he like, seems like minor. He seems like Steve Carell kind yeah. of barking into a phone. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't in any way buy him as a powerful man. Right. And supposedly that was the role that Bruce Willis was supposed to play. And then he, I don't know, got fired apparently. Who knows why? Suppose there's all kinds of rumors. You can read them online. But I can't imagine Bruce Willis in that part either. Could you? I can. You I can? feel like it would make a little more sense to me maybe. Well, maybe like the Bruce Willis of like 15, 20 years ago when he was dynamic. But uh, to me, he's like so low energy on screen now. That I think maybe that's why he got. Uh, who knows? Uh, that that I mean, that's one reason I would have fired him if he showed up and performed it the way he has in some of these other movies. Yeah, but there's something about both like the way in which characters literally tell you what someone's qualities are supposed to be, right? In this, and also the way in which characters like float from location to location. Like the the whole bit about how like uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart's characters fall in love just seems to be like a set like of them driving around standing in front of like picturesque locations where you're just like what are they doing there how did they get there you yeah. know like it doesn't seem like he's actually thought out what a day would be like in them together you know it's just a backdrop against which he can have them recite his lines sure i mean i think part of that is kind of the dreamlike nostalgic quality of the movie that's perhaps intentional and we should say i feel like we haven't once mentioned the cinematography in this movie yet uh vittorio storaro is the cinematographer this movie is beautiful to look it at is. it's gorgeous it does i do feel like it's like he just discovered the steady cam though. Like there are multiple like there there's a shot that he repeats again and again and again in this is like the steady cam shot closing in on like which it's like the first shot that you get in the movie and it's very beautiful then and then it happens like multiple times almost in a row and I feel like by the end of that it was just like this is like the first time he's realized that this is something you can do with a camera. Oh, I, you know, I didn't really pick up on that so much. I just thought the compositions, the color, it's you know, walking, al- yeah, walking along the beach with these lovers, or there's that scene towards the end where they're standing in Central Park and on that bridge. And I mean, it's just beautiful. Like in a way, it was funny. I was thinking of, you know, Woody Allen's very first movie is this thing called What's Up Tiger Lily, where he dubbed out a, 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 like a an action movie and put in his own funny lines and in a way i almost wanted to do that here at times when i was so kind of disengaged with the story i was like this is such a beautiful movie can't we just like rewrite this dialogue uh maybe get something a little more interesting not i don't want funny i want like you know more i don't know just more passion or something i i I would uh, you know i don't want to just bash the movie because i did by the end of it i was caught up in a little of it i think the i think one of the problems i had too is I thought all this stuff in in Hollywood, Los Angeles, was a bust. I thought that, like you said, I think Steve Carell, you know, his character doesn't really work. I don't think you really buy him in that role. It's not even entirely clear unless you're really paying attention. Like he seems like a hot, like a, a studio executive, but he's actually an agent, and and you don't really get a sense of what he does. Even it's just that he mentions, oh, I got so and so a job. Sort of what you were saying. Like you never really see him in action. You just hear people talking about him, or sometimes there's some dialogue. And just in general, I don't know if it's just that Woody Allen d- doesn't care, doesn't understand, didn't really want – like the the Hollywood of the movie just doesn't feel like it has any detail or tactility to it, especially when it comes out the year of like a Hail Caesar, which is such a more vibrant kind of depiction of basically that era in Hollywood that's so much funnier and livelier and feels more real and lived in. When I th- When the movie shifts back to – New York, I thought it got better. 
Um, and I thought that was where some of the themes that were interesting kind of came into play. The stuff with the brother and also the sister and the husband and their their rude neighbor, which is really has nothing to do with anything else in the movie, but I think is one of those kind of classic Woody Allen-like ethical dilemma things, like a crimes and misdemeanors, where this guy is a jerk, their neighbor is rude, loud, obnoxious, maybe threatening them, and they talk to uh, uh, the the relative who's a gangster and say, maybe you could talk to him. And then the, the it goes badly. It goes badly, and then it's like, well, how culpable are we? And are we at fault? How can we move past this? How much blame should we feel? Should we go to the police? I thought all that stuff was, you know, again, it's stuff he's done before. He's riffing. It's jazz. But I thought it was, it was, you know, relatively well done. And then when you get to the ending and some of the the sort of, you know, that kind of like impossibility of this love, I, I thought some of that got to me. And the and just the idea of. You know, uh, the passage of time, the way he works in the New Year's idea with the the, the ending that he's chosen, that line, dreams are dreams, that's repeated a few times, I found I found somewhat affecting. Uh, so there are, I think there are things in it in it that work. I just feel like, again, you know, Woody Allen, at least as an observer, as an observer, as a fan, he just seems much more concerned with output and working than, you know, like perfectionism at all. And you have to, as you said, if you are super in the bag for him and you're will have you seen every movie and you're willing to say okay i see what he's doing here this is a riff on crimes and misdemeanors plus radio days times uh manhattan okay I, you know like sure there that can be kind of interesting and sort of on an intellectual level i can kind of get that too i just i want to feel more from these movies as more than just exercises in autorism i really want to get involved in the characters and the stories and I did a little bit at the end of this, but not nearly as much as, as I feel like I want to and I should. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there was potential in the the whole his family, and I felt like I would have rather seen more about them. And frankly, less even the I think the the kind of doomed love story in this did nothing for me. And I feel like Kristen Stewart was basically working against material that was like extremely thin and kind of assigned her a thankless role. I don't disagree. Um, and I think she kind of managed to infuse a bit more complications and humanity into this character who was really there to be to like prompt this like reflection in the male the male right. main character in Jesse Eisenberg's character also I think that like Blake Lively is in one of the most thankless oh. roles of all time so I felt movie. so bad for it's her terrible so terrible she like shows up she's not bad either she's not but you but just like, go she's a prop basically she is a prop absolutely and, and, and then is like you know, falls falls for Jesse Eisenberg's character, marries him, and then is consigned to their house, like it by in the Hudson to the point where people are like asking yeah, about what her. What happened to her? And he's yeah. like, "Well, she, we had a baby. What, that's what happens with women; they fall in love with their babies. When they have babies, yes. yeah, and it all, yeah. it all falls apart. It's like such a kind of like, I mean, the fact that it's it's almost by design, I guess, a thankless role. Except that I don't know. It, I I just felt like. I, I think it is by design, and I think you're yeah. supposed to be – I mean, it's designed to sort of play up the the contrast between these sure. two women. But, but I agree that it is a thankless role. I mean, it role. would mean more, I think – it would mean more in terms of, like, the dilemma that he faces towards the end as well if it weren't so just, like, here is this beautiful, complacent woman who right. he married and then tucked away. Like, there would be more stakes in terms of, like, Absolutely. him wondering about cheating on his wife if like, she, she was anyone If she at cared. All. Or if, if she, she was in, had more screen person. time. Yeah. yeah. And she could, yeah, express some frustration or something. Right. If she really seems, does disappear from the movie, yeah, basically. It, it, and like, she doesn't yeah, have a big part to, to begin, begin with. with. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I don't know. I, I 
keep watching Woody Allen movies because they keep turning up at festivals mostly. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where I saw Cafe Society. It's where I saw Rational Man and Magic in the Moonlight. I just, I, I get so little from them, including this, that I just... Uh, I don't think I... I should really just stop. <laughs> it's, it's, he I won't think, stop. He it's, won't stop. So you might have to stop. I might have to stop. My, here's my last question, I, because you, you mentioned this at the top, and I think it is a, a very worthwhile question, is why do, why do people still want to work with him? Where it's not... You know, look, if you're a struggling actor, of course you'd want to work with Woody Allen, but he gets the best of the best. Incredible. And I'm sure they're all taking pay cuts, because he ain't making $100 million movies. You know, I think he's actually getting more money now that he's hooked up with Amazon, who have money to burn. Yeah, I think this was the most he's ever spent on a movie. I mean, it was like $30,000, $30 million or something right. like that. Which for his, I mean, I mean, it's huge for him. Yeah, that's like three times what he's been working with for a long time. So, I, you know, like, I don't understand why you know, young up. And these are not people who also have like, you know, nostalgic uh, reflections on like me, like growing up with them. Like, I mean, maybe, I don't know, uh, maybe Jesse Eisenberg's a huge fan. Maybe Kristen Stewart's a huge fan, but I, especially with younger actors, I always go like, why are you doing this? Do you have any thoughts on why? I I don't know. I have to assume that there's this sense of legitimacy that comes with being in his movies that people still crave in the same way I feel about like Terrence Malick, who I like more as a filmmaker, though his output is also, I think, all over the place of, re- of late. Yeah. But where you're like, all of these people act in Terrence Malick movies, and I'm not convinced that all of them have seen a Terrence Malick movie. Well, in their case, that's even more questionable because you might get completely might cut out of the movie be, yes. and never even appear and in it. you might never be told what this movie is about. <laughs> right, and, right. Yes. To me, that's even more right. questionable. But, right. you, but you're right. It's an interesting comparison. Yeah, where you're like, it's this thing that It's a think, status symbol. Exactly. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think, you know, like Alan has gotten credit over the years for writing great female characters. I don't know that I would agree with that. But certainly in these recent movies, they have not been great female characters. No, it's been a while since, yes. since he's written one of that uh, caliber, I and would I, say. And I, he gets these amazing actresses. Yeah, you know? it is pretty strange. And it, and it does, it certainly, I, from my perspective, I think it does help him coast along a little bit. Because when you get great actors, you don't have to direct them as much. Or... You know, it wouldn't hurt if you did, but, you know, they're capable. And I feel like even when he's not directing them that much, sometimes they're sheer charisma alone. Like in this case, like Parker Posey is delightful in this movie. She is. You kind of want a whole movie about her yeah. life. And, yeah, she's uh, this sort of modeling agency she runs in yeah, New York. Yeah, she runs this modeling agency. She just has all this charisma and charm. She's wandering around the, the nightclub that Jesse Eisenberg's character run. And you're just like, she's wonderful. And it's just great to see her. You know, we don't get to see enough of her these days. And uh, you just bring her in and she takes care of herself. She right. does what she needs to do. Or poor Anna Camp in that oh. Oh, that, that scene that, that scene is, is agonizing. Brutal. And you're like, I like you so much, Anna Camp, and you're doing the best you can with this scene. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've, we've given a fair accounting of this movie, good yes. and bad. I, I think we were pretty even-handed here. That is Cafe Society. It is available now on Amazon Prime. Come and dance on our floor. Take a step that is new. Take a step that is new. space that needs your face. Sweet company too. You'll see that life is a So for.
for cue shots on this episode, I had actually suggested we do like late Woody Allen, like defending, you know, find the ones, the diamonds in the rough, so to speak. And Allison was like, yeah, I don't think I can do that. No way, man. No way. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, what, what do you want to do? And so what we have ended up coming up with, which I think is a good topic, actually, and certainly applies to Cafe Society, is love triangles. Uh, love triangles, although I, I think in Cafe Society and in one of my movies, it's more of a love quadrangle, but that's fine. It's not a big deal. Whatever. You know, the triangle is the basic shape of lo- a complicated love entanglement. A complicated love entanglement. And it gave me an excuse. Triangle. And we're not going to do picks. I, I'm springing this on you, Allison. We're just going to talk about Pearl Harbor for the next 40 minutes. I hope that's okay. <laughs> we're going to break it down scene by scene. Absolutely. And then I'm going to – was there – I was going to say I was going to sing the theme song. Was there an Aerosmith theme song to Pearl Harbor? I, I mean, can't remember now. I think now. that if you just sang Pearl Harbor in an Aerosmith style, just the words Pearl Harbor, I, I think – I don't want to go to Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Beautiful. It's beautiful. I don't want to go to Hawaii. I miss you, babe. <laughs> and I don't want to be played by Josh Hartnett. I think that won the Oscar that year. I think it did. Original song. Yes. And then six Raz- Razzies as well. Uh, so maybe we won't mention Pearl Harbor again as one of the great love triangles of cinema, although it was a love triangle. It movie. was a love triangle. And the thing is, like, some of the greatest movies in in the canon are love triangle movies. Casablanca. Julesy Jim. Yeah. The, the Graduate. Gone with the Wind. Farewell, Philadelphia My Concubine. Story. Philadelphia Story. Days of Heaven. Twilight. A great movie of our era. <laughs> I'd like to hear an Aerosmith song about Twilight, too. You know. Um, but I did not pick any of those, and I'm guessing you did not. I did not, no. Okay. Um, so why don't you tell us your first pick, then? Okay. My first pick is one of the most popular movies of my teenage years that I never saw as a teenager. only saw it for the first time a couple of years ago when I was writing a, a, an essay. And I uh, discovered that despite what seemed to me as a kid, you know, just look like a pretty generic romantic comedy, was actually a pretty damn good movie. It is My Best Friend's Wedding from 1997, directed by PJ Hogan. It is currently available on Crackle.com. Uh, whether or not you've seen this one, you probably know its star, Julia Roberts. She plays this New York food critic. She is madly, secretly in love with her best friend, who's played by everyone's favorite, Dylan McDermott, Dermot Mulroney. And a decade earlier, when they were in college, they made this vow that when they turn 28, if neither one is married, they will get married to each other. And now we are 10 years later. It is it is, you know, the, the milestone is weeks away and Julia Roberts' character, Julianne, is can't wait. She is delighted because she is ready to marry this guy that she loves. But then she finds out that Dermot's character, Michael, is engaged to someone else, this bubbly college student who is played by Cameron Diaz. And so the love triangle here is between Michael, who's kind of clueless to the way Julianne feels about him. The blushing bride, who's played by Cameron Diaz. And Julianne, who's played by Julia Roberts. And so innately has this likability and this sweetness because she's Julia Roberts, but is also at first kind of secretly the villain of the movie. And that's what I like about My Best Friend's Wedding and what makes it to me interesting and enjoyable is the fact that the hero of the movie is also the bad guy at the same time because she loves Michael. She wants him to herself. And so she's constantly trying to sabotage the wedding subtly at first, but increasingly with this desperation and intensity And I think that's what makes it a a fun movie. And one of the things that's inherent in love triangle movies and what sometimes I think makes them difficult to pull off in movies is that unless all three characters stay together in a kind of menage a trois, which has happened on occasion. And really, I think, should for twists happen more often. I agree. Uh, Unless that happens, someone is left on the outside. Someone is going to be sad. And frankly, the loser. So – 
that can sort of play with audiences' sympathy and allegiance, and that can kind of make a movie, I think, less commercial, is depending on how you play that. And one of the things that I like about My Best Friend's Wedding is the way it kind of messes with the audience in that way because you have Julia Roberts, America's sweetheart. She's so sympathetic. We like her. But over the course of the movie, she reveals herself to be kind of awful until we, or at least I, when I watched it, found myself rooting against her, which I found really interesting. And a clever way to work with the constraints of that love triangle is that if you're going to, if someone is going to be on the outside, make them sort of, make us kind of dislike them. And I thought all the way that the movie uses that as really fun. It's funny as well. You have I haven't mentioned him. Rupert Everett plays uh, Julianne's best friend George. He has some great scenes. There's this one. He scene. like walks off with a lot of. Oh, movies. he steals. Yeah. yeah, scenes left and right. He the, the best scene is where to make Michael jealous. Julianne pretends that he is her fiance, and they have this very awkward. I think it's the rehearsal dinner, which is really really funny. So. I encourage people to check this one out. You know, you've seen the box art or the DVD cover or whatever, and you go, oh, it's a Julia Roberts movie. I've, you know, I know Julia Roberts. I know her work. I know what this is. This one, I think it really plays against the ideas that a lot of her other movies do. And I feel like it shows that she really understands her persona and whether or not she always uses it effectively. In this case, she really does. So that's My Best Friend's Wedding, and it is available on Crackle. It's a really good pick. Yeah. I haven't seen that for a long time. It's I I mean, I never saw it as a kid. I saw it. I wrote this huge piece for The Dissolve about Julia Roberts' whole career. And that was one of the couple movies that I went, this is a really good movie. And it is a movie. It's a story. It's got characters. It's great. It's not just a showcase for her to be Julia Roberts. So And Cameron Diaz, very likable. Cameron Diaz it. is She's amazing really, in it, too, yes. right, at, right at the beginning of her career. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, for my first pick, uh, I went with a movie that was like the first one that came to mind when we talked about doing Love Triangles, uh, because I think it is so kind of sophisticated in the way it handles the kind of fulcrum of this Love Triangles dilemma. Uh, it is The Deep Blue Sea, which is streaming on Fandor, the Terrence Davies film, not the one in which Samuel L. Jackson uh, gets eaten by a shark. I love the love triangle in that between <laughs> Thomas Jane, the shark, yes. and LL Cool J. It's very mm, powerful. It is. Heartwarming. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, adapted from play. You know, it's funny. I ended up picking two movies that were adapted from plays, and I feel like plays are often, for me, bad source material for films they're they seem like they should be natural but they're in some ways they're like so close to screenplays and yet far enough away that you feel the differences you feel mm -hmm. the kind of airlessness of how stage bound they're written and the theatrical dialogue but like that's it's not that's not the case for the deep blue sea um it's set in england in the 1950s and stars rachel weiss as hester who is a kind of high-class housewife who is caught between two men. She's married to uh, Sir, Sir William Collier, played by Simon Russell Beale, who is older than her. He's a high court judge. And she has this very affectionate relationship with him that is also almost devoid of passion. And then she leaves him for a former RAF pilot named uh, Freddie Page, played by Tom Hiddleston, who just sweeps her off her feet. Uh, and she has this very like deeply passionate and very physical and like connection to him that she knows is going to ruin her. And I really love the way their relationship is displayed because Freddie is basically kind of like a jock <laughs> as much as he's like, he's a soldier. He uh, like his grandest days were the days of being like a pilot and saving England. And, you know, he's patriotic. He's also deeply uninterested in all of the things she's interested in. And she knows that he does not love her the way that she loves him. She's like obsessed with him. 
And yet he is constantly kind of like slighting her in small ways. And yet she leaves her whole life behind to be with him. And the, uh, the movie is set over a course of a, uh, of a day in which it starts with her attempting suicide and uh, unsuccessfully and being revived. And it kind of, time keeps slipping back and forth in these flashbacks so that you, you see what happens and how she met Freddie and how she, uh, her relationship with William. Uh, there's a particularly great scene in which she's having dinner with her needling mother-in-law uh, who, who says, beware of passion, Hester. It always leads to something ugly. And uh, when asked what she would suggest and said, suggests a guarded enthusiasm as the best uh, best way to go through life, just having <laughs> guarded enthusiasms for things. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, like Terrence Davies is very good at both portraying like the beauty and the romanticism of the past while also portraying it. He never papers over its kind of uglier aspects. And in this movie, London is just like, beautiful dark smoky place of gorgeous colors but it's also it's also a place in which you have this character who is uh, you know the deep blue sea is a reference to being you know caught between the devil and the deep blue sea she's in this impossible position and i one of the best scenes in the movie is one in which her husband comes to see her after she's left him after she's attempted suicide and is just trying to understand trying to understand this relationship and like essentially is willing to let her go or take her back. And she can't, she knows that she should just, you know, return to be with him and she can't bring herself to do it. It's such a kind of, it's such a intelligently done portrayal of being caught and, and also like an intelligently done portrayal of having like of the pull that just a very physical relationship with someone can have, even when you know that they are not, a good fit for you in like all other aspects of your life. Uh, it's a great movie and it's a very good Rachel Weisz performance. It's really spectacular. Um, so that is The Deep Blue Sea and it is on Fandor. All right. My next pick, one of my favorite movies of the last decade and I believe was my number one movie of the year it came out. If memory serves, Michael Phillips actively mocked me for liking this movie Ooh. on Film Spotting Original Recipe, but that's fine. My feelings about it have not changed. Uh, it is Two Lovers by James Gray. It is available for rent, loosely based on a Dostoevsky short story. The triangle here, I think I mentioned at the top of the segment, uh, very similar to Cafe Society, a uh, working class Jewish dude played by Joaquin Phoenix, caught between a woman he adores, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who was in love with a married man, played by Elias Coteus, and the woman who adores him, played by Vanessa Shaw, was really great in the movie where I was like, what happened to Vanessa Shaw? I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff. I looked her up. She's been working, but, you know, she had a role on a season of Ray Donovan. She was in Side Effects, which I had forgotten about. But anyway, um, and again, this is also, I guess, because it's so similar to Cafe Society. It is kind of a love quadrangle, but, I mean, it's fine. We're going to if, – if Cafe Society counts, I, this counts too. Uh, so, so the main difference, though, between – Two Lovers and Cafe Society is that instead of playing it as a sort of melancholic comedy, Two Lovers is like full-on melodrama, which I say as a compliment, not an insult. The, most, the emotions in this movie are very intense. Uh, it opens uh, with Joaquin Phoenix's character trying to commit suicide, more attempted suicide, huzzah! Uh, and we later learn why he's so depressed, why he's alone. That secret that we find out is incredibly devastating, and then he has this very intense but frustrating relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, and then there's this ending, which 
you know, it isn't even so much a gut punch as it is like the movie equivalent of abdominal surgery without anesthesia. It's just brutal, but in this wonderful way with great performances. And uh, without spoiling the ending, I feel like what I said uh, in the last pick about love triangles and having like a loser or someone who's left on the outside, it definitely applies here. And I think that that's like James Gray really plays into that where you really become so invested in the Joaquin Phoenix character that you really it just gets the, the ending to me. I always get caught up in the ending of this movie. And I was thinking about this movie, looking at a few scenes again, and thinking about how like the romance in, in most movies, most Hollywood movies, is so formulaic with the two people who meet by accident, and they're perfect for each other, but they just don't realize it, and they, you know, they have these contrivances to keep them apart. But basically, it's just a formality that they're going to be together, and they're going to be together forever. These people are perfect. They're destined to be together. And love triangles are kind of fun because they kind of deflate that idea of fate and destiny and, and the, this perfect love. Because what you see instead is how that's basically impossible. And like one person loves person A, but person A loves person B. And person C loves person A, but person A doesn't love person C. And you just get, you know, the, the, the idea of these feelings that are not reciprocated, which does happen in real life. And it's, more, it's a more over-the-top version of real life. But I think they get at something that feels truer uh, and more relatable and more interesting and alive than so many of the kind of typical romantic comedies, which can be fun and, you know, they can be escapist and fantasy, and that's great. There's a place for that. But it just, even as they are kind of, they can be melodramatic or, you know, very over the top, I think that they're playing with ideas that a lot of people can relate to and have experienced, just maybe not in that specific way. So that is Two Lovers, and that is available right now for Rent. And I don't care what you say, Michael Phillips. I like this movie. I don't know why he would make fun of you for that. I He's not like a James was, Gray fan. Uh, that was, I think, that's my favorite James Gray. It's mine too. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, for my second pick, it was I treated myself to a film I had not seen yet mm. and that I loved so much. Oh, wow. It is The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, oh. uh, which is available for rent and is streaming on Filmstruck as well. So get two streaming picks from me this time. This is Rainer Werner Fassbinder's 1972 film about a love triangle between three women with various uh, relatives and stuff on the side, complicating dramas as well. There's the title character, a famous fashion designer played by Margaret Carstensen. There is Marlena, played by Erm Herman, who is uh, Petra's silent, she never talks, secretary and assistant, and essentially like a live-in servant who is in love with her uh, and is just constantly being just uh, taken advantage of. And then there's Karen, uh, played by Hannah Shigila. I am totally butchered that last name, sorry. Uh, who is the beautiful younger woman that Petra falls for, takes in to her house, and is ultimately spurned by. And this is also based on a play, as I mentioned. It's based on Fassbender's own play, and it takes place almost entirely in Petra's bedroom, which is a very fabulous bedroom uh, that uh, also has like a lot of really interesting things going on in it, including these mannequins, because she's a fashion designer, that are constantly seem to be playing out a kind of commentary on the main action in the way they're, they're posed. Um, but its view of love, the view of love in this is 
so stylized and dark. It's love as this ongoing kind of cruel power dynamic in which the smitten party, the party that is like more engaged in the relationship is forever more vulnerable, is forever being stepped on, is forever being treated cruelly. In Marlena's case, that's kind of the point. There's this masochism to her her silent devotion. She is always in the background typing angrily as she watches, uh, you know, the object of her affection romance someone else um the thing that i think is outstanding about this beyond just like how grand and stylized it is including these like fabulous costumes uh petra is always wearing a different wig until the ending and uh, in one scene is like going out to a party or something and is wearing i cannot describe this dress but it involves chain like pearls and chains and like pasties essentially and uh gray skirt and silver silver sandals and it is it looks like um she looks like a valkyrie of some sort like a high fashion uh. valkyrie uh but I, the thing about this movie that i think beyond the performances and the the this kind of like grandeur of its like of its woe its sense of woe is just how visually interesting it is you know i i mentioned that i think plays often come off as feeling airless and i know we disagree about fences that was I th- something that I felt with fences but in in this you never feel constrained by space at all he just Fassbender makes so many brilliant choices in just like how he shoots scenes and how he uses space um, there's this early scene in which Marlena watches Petra uh, visit with her cousin and this visit is happening like kind of out of focus beyond like in the back of the frame and Marlena is watching them through like a through a mirror a window essentially and like poses on the on the window and it is like this like physical expression of yearning and sorrow that comes across entirely in 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 how unusually this thing is framed it is i i think one of the most like impressively framed and thought through movies in terms of just like shot composition i've ever seen the use of uh of focus and the way it kind of like it, they use the depth of the room is, uh, is incredible. I, I think, you know, I haven't seen a lot of Fassbender's work and I really, this has me wanting to see everything right away. Um, it is, I, I, I think if you can adjust to its wavelength, which requires you like uh, taking on giant, ridiculous, cruel uh, figures and kind of seeing the real raw emotional, emotional humanity in them. I think that this this movie is incredible. So that is The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. It is streaming on Filmstruck and available for rent. All right, Allison. Now that we're recording. Yes. For real this time. Yes, we may or may not have talked for a while without. Not that long. Pressing the button. Five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. It was the best stuff we've minutes, ever done, really. An hour. And you won't hear it ever. Alas. It's gone, but we're going to start over. So, Allison, let's talk about some new movies. Uh, I'm not going to make you uh, say the name of the segment because you don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. No. But let's start with some new movies. What do you want to start with first? Let's talk about Hidden Figures. Let's. This uh, feel-good period movie kind of dramedy about uh, three real women who uh, worked in NASA or I think maybe like also whatever it was called before NASA, mm-hmm. helping with the space race, doing yeah. mathematics. They are computers. They are called computers. That is the job before they had actual physical computers. Um, yeah, it's a nice movie. Totally pleasant. Great performances from Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet in particular. I really am thrilled about her blossoming acting career with this in Moonlight. 
Um, yeah, it's nice. I agree. I agree with the, I agree with all that. It's a it's a nice solid little biopic, uh, you know, prestige awards movie. It's not gonna you know it's not gonna change the world. Uh, at least the world of cinema. I might. I think it could uh, inspire and empower some young people who see sure. it for sure. I think it, you know it's in terms of representation and Oscar movies. It's certainly that's, like that's a it's good got thing. Some weight there. Sure. I, I don't. It's a little too nice for me. I think I wish it were pressed a little harder at. It's a feel-good movie. It is a feel Everyone good can movie. feel like there's no bad guys here, really. Everyone, Everyone can feel, comes around, even like uh, Kirsten Dunst's like um, racist kind of overtly racist. Yeah. Yes, comes around. Yes, and and learns a lesson, or which two. is uh, that's nice. I mean, it's yeah. a well, feel-good movie. It has a lot of other people, like Kevin Costner's character, who is like not racist. Has just never noticed. Racism. He doesn't. Yeah, he does not know that racism exists. Right, is sort of the character he's, he's busy, playing. He's like, too busy with the space, space race. Yeah. yeah. When like literally, there's a scene where like they like he like literally like discovers racism at NASA, and he's like, "What is this?" <laughs> and he gets like a big kind of it's like it's a fun scene, but it is a little like head scratching where it's like he hasn't noticed. He lives in Virginia and he's unaware. Right. Okay, all right, fine. But uh, yeah, and I agree with about Janelle Monae. She's really really good here, and she was good in Moonlight. She's got it. She's a, like I'm convinced she's a star. If yeah. she wants to be like a big movie star. I believe firmly she could be like one of the biggest. Movie I am stars. fully on board, and I want that to happen. She's got, she has it. She had, like the camera loves her. You can't take your eyes off her when she's on screen. No matter both of those movies, um, I think she's beautiful. She's got the charisma, and, and she's, she's also got this gravitas. She, she does. She's older. A, but she's an actor. It's not yes. just that she's you know pretty or striking on screen. She backs it up with some heft. Right. She seems. She seems like. She has this like older soul to her, or at least she brings to these characters who are both like pretty young and yet at the same time have wisdom to impart in yes. both of these movies. She has a great scene in, in Hidden Figures where she sort of like talks a judge into doing something that this judge would never in a million years do. And you're like, I believe that this woman could have talked that man into doing anything. Like he's, she's just that kind of compelling and great. Yep. So there you go. So that's Hidden Figures. Very solid. You'll enjoy it. Check it out uh, this holiday season. What's next? Uh, live by night. Live by the, night. The Affleck. Not they live by night. Not they live. They by do night. not live by night. Not live by night. They live by a night. Li- a live show every night. Or about the, the band live. That would be a live biopic. Sure. <laughs> that would be a different movie. It would be a different movie. This is instead a Ben Affleck directed, Ben Affleck starring, period gangster movie based on a Dennis Lehane book uh, taking place. Half in Boston and half, well, not, not even, even like half, half. It's, a third it's, in Boston. I think people are going to be expecting, based on it's Ben Affleck and some of the trailers, that like they're going to be expecting a lot of it to be set in Boston yeah. with him being like, I'm a, I'm a gangster. You can't get my territory. Get the out. You know, all that stuff. It's, he, it's mostly in Miami. Yeah. yeah. You don't have a Florida accent to bust out there? Uh, no, I don't. I don't even know. Is there a Florida no, accent? You could do a Cuban accent. That would be definitely yeah. offensive. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. All right. It's well, a line too far even for me. Uh, you liked this movie more than I did. I thought this movie was pretty bad. Yeah, you you really didn't like it. It, it has based on everything I've uh, other people I've talked to. It seems to be generally not particularly well liked. I thought it was fine for what it was. It is certainly not Argo. It's not Gone Baby Gone, which is another Ben Affleck Dennis Lehane adaptation, which I really like. I really like too. Yeah, this is you know I think that what I liked about it was there, there's just some there's some nice. It's a very episodic film. You know, it's based on a novel and it feels kind of sprawling. Um, 
it is in this weird place where you almost go, it, maybe it should have been a little shorter or maybe it should have been a lot longer. Like it probably would be a great miniseries because so much goes on. It's like, it's like years and years in the life of this gangster as Miami and the underworld of Miami kind of bubbles and churns around him. Yeah, I feel like in some ways it should have just gotten to Miami sooner because that is the main point of the story. Yeah. It, this it, gangster in Miami trying to figure out, like lay down territory and start a life. Yeah, the Boston stuff is pretty superfluous. I think it's probably in in the book maybe right. and maybe that's something that because of Ben Affleck's background he's maybe more has an affinity sure, for sure, sure. and uh, I just, you're right I, the Boston stuff is is kind of a it's superfluous and maybe they could have just trimmed all that out I just really liked some of the little segments it does feel like a sprawling uh, you know, crime novel. Not a great one in this case, but I, you know, I liked some of it. I liked Elle Fanning's character, actually, um, who's this... It, it, there's a lot of twists and turns. She plays the daughter of one of the other characters, and you think she's just going to kind of vanish from the story, and she kind of comes back as a essentially a reborn figure in a very interesting way. And she has a really nice scene too with Affleck later in the movie that I thought was the best scene in the movie, actually. Sure. The two of them in this coffee would, shop having a conversation... That's great. Um, and it has a few other nice little nuggets in it. I didn't feel like I'd wasted my time watching it. It's I think, fine. I, yeah. I, I Very mild recommendation. I think that he is miscast. I don't think he should have starred in this movie. I mean, I think I'm assuming that's how it got made, but I don't I think that it comes across as a vanity project. Like, I think he is too. He's not able to invest that character with more than just looking like Ben Affleck uh, wearing a bunch of, you know, cool, cool clothes, retro old suits. clothes. Yeah. And playing this kind of like this criminal character with such a sense of wounded nobility that I found deeply annoying. I, yeah, I mean, I didn't mind him as much as you. I do think if Ben Affleck was not as big a star, not as handsome, we probably would be approaching a point where he would abandon acting completely and just be a director. I think he's probably a better yeah. director than actor. But he's Batman. But he is Batman, so that's probably not going to happen. That's not going to happen. All right. All right, last movie. Yes. 20th Century Women. Yes. Mike Mills. What do you think? Uh, I like this movie quite a bit. Um, I loved uh, Mike Mills' previous movie, Beginners, which was about his yeah. dad, basically. And this one, as I, I see it, is basically about his mom. It feels like it. You I, know, I don't know how how personal like it is in terms of drawing from his his direct background, but it certainly feels very personal. Yeah, and there's this. I think there is sort of a. I mean, there there is a kind of figure that's probably Mike Mills, the teenage Mike Mills, but he's actually not the central figure, although no. I guess he maybe is in theory, but it's all the characters are pointed towards him. Exactly. Yeah. But that basically it's much more about his mother, who's played by Annette Benning, and these other women in his life, Elle Fanning again, again. and Greta Gerwig, who... Uh, who's really great. I, I thought Elle Fanning was great, too. Basically, the mother recruits these two women to help her raise her son, essentially, that you know, he, he's, he's, he's in these critical teen years, he needs some guidance and some focus. And so she basically explicitly says, you are going to help me raise this guy to turn him into a good man. And uh, it's, it's, it is similar to Beginners in the sense that it has sort of these kind of – if you've seen Beginners, the way that it would sort of have the like narrations of the characters, yeah, where they've come from, and time. also where they would go yeah. from the movie, which – is a very effective device. It's that great. I'm, not it really sure, I'm sure other people have done it, but when he, when Mike Mills does it in these two movies, it feels very personal and very specific to and him. Melancholy. Yes. Like there's this real sense of because he tells you essentially where these characters who are so vivacious and alive on screen where they die essentially, yes. which adds this tinge to everything that happens. And also, I, I mean, this movie is, and I like this movie a lot too. It is a movie about 
the strengths and weaknesses of a family of choice effectively, mm-hmm. right? Like of this kind of big rambling post hippie setup in which uh, all of these tenants in the house that Annette Benning's character is renting out, uh, that they kind of become part of this temporary family. But the, the way, like the time, the glimpses into the future are reminders of the kind of how tenuous these connections can right, be right. as strong as they are on screen that there is not not a permanence to them necessarily and yeah. that's or a, well or any relationship or any relationship too. right it's really it's sweet and sad yes very affecting uh if you liked beginners i would strongly encourage you and even if you haven't but if you if you were a fan of that movie i have a hard time imagining you would not be a fan of this one 20th century women so we've got i mean it's a couple of very strong ones i liked all three of them so you know i'm i'm having i'm in a great mood right now there you go all right let's get to behind the eight ball where we wrap things up on the show with some new recommendations on streaming we give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and of course we've also got one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists allison I'm going to, as always, I'm going to let you choose first or second here. Who's going first? I'll go first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. New to Tubi TV, which is a free ad-supported site, is Future World. This is the 1976 sequel to 1973's Westworld. It was not as successful. It does have an amazing cast. Peter Fonda, Blythe Danner, Arthur Hill, uh, Yul Brynner in a dream sequence. Uh but, you know, I think if you have been watching the Westworld on HBO and are hungry for all things Westworld, you can check out this not particularly well-received sequel, which tries to expand on the universe of that first film. That is on 2B TV. New to Amazon Prime is Gleason. This is a documentary uh, from 2016 about... Uh, a few years in the life of Steve Gleason, who was a New Orleans Saints football player and who then was diagnosed with ALS. And it is a documentary about his experiences, including a lot of his own like video diaries uh, as he can, as ALS kind of slowly eats away at his ability to move and to kind of talk eventually bring a hanky bring five uh, it is devastating invest um, in the kleenex corporation yes especially since um like he's diagnosed like right around the time his his wife is pregnant Ugh. um but it is uh, it is also like uplifting as much as it is sad that is gleason it is on amazon prime finally new to netflix is season one of the magicians this is uh a sci-fi series that is based on the novel or trilogy of novels uh, by Lev Grossman. And I love these books. I really adore them. And so I was really interested to, and I've just started watching this. Um, I was really interested to see this TV adaptation, which by all accounts is both very different from the novels and yet true in spirit and is, you could call it a grown up Harry Potter setup with more sex and drugs and a lot more depression and darkness. Um, so if that sounds good to you, it sure did to me. The Magicians is on Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations? We got one from Jill, 
who writes, I just watched Blue Jay streaming on Netflix, written by Mr. Everywhere, Mark Duplass, directed by Alex Lehman, also the cinematographer, and starring Mark Duplass and the wonderful, marvelous Sarah Paulson. Filmed in black and white, the cinematography is gorgeous. Sarah Paulson is particularly good. I never tired of watching her. It's a small movie that kept my interest because, like I said, the cinematography is beautiful and the chemistry between the two characters is totally believable. Worth a watch? Here's hoping 2017 makes us stronger and doesn't kill us. Seriously. Uh, thank you for that, Jill. And pulled one off of Twitter just because also uh, it was a mention of, of one of the movies that we had as a listener's choice option that didn't make it. So shout out from Bonesteel underscore KIC on Twitter, who noted of 13 hours. Fun as hell movie. Just wish it wasn't about Benghazi because of the politics involved. Um, and I will take this moment to also shout out that this movie, if you ever see it, does have an endearingly dorky cast that has been bulked up into extreme muscle muscularity. John Krasinski and James Badge Dale are kind of the most hilariously ripped uh, cho uh, choices for ripped main characters uh, that I, I've seen and enjoyed. Uh, also, one quick thing. A few people asked us uh, after this movies what my pick for best movie of 2016 oh, yeah. was yeah, going like, to be. Yes, we forgot. I forgot to include it. Yes, well, I, it wasn't your fault. I think I forgot to look it up, and then we were in a hurry, so I didn't have time to look it up. So uh, my prediction at the end of last year for what the best movie of 2016 would be, Matt, do you know what it is? I don't. Why don't you tell me? Girl on a Train. That didn't work out too well. That didn't work out. When I am wrong, I am wrong. Can I be can I be honest here for a second? Please. I never turn off movies. I turned that movie off like literally really? like ten minutes in. I was like, this is it's awful. Bad. It is very bad. I, I just and I didn't see any like I just didn't see any hope. And it was there, you know, it, it was at the end of the year. I didn't see it in the theater, obviously. They sent me a screener. God only knows why they sent awards. They sent screeners. me a screener too. A very ambitious a list very, of like possible awards it could win too. Yeah, they were really reaching there. But I so I I I you know, I'm there's so many movies to watch. And so I turned it on and I was like, Nope. And yeah. I went to watch something that felt more promising. Yeah, you know, you're not missing anything. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. All right. Well, you were wrong about that one. I but was wrong. Look. You'll redeem yourself. I have confidence in that. Thank you. Okay. And how about one film? My list. You give me number six. Number six is Beautiful Girls. This is the 1996 Ted Demi movie uh, with a great cast of uh, Matt Dillon and Lauren Holly and Timothy Hutton, Rosie O'Donnell, Martha Plimpton, Michael Rappaport, Mira Servino, Uma Thurman, and Natalie Portman. I think this was like one of the roles in which she first got a lot of attention um, as this like I don't know, like 14-year-old girl who starts this totally inappropriate flirtation with the main character um, about a character who goes home for his high school reunion, can't decide if he's going to marry his girlfriend or if he should take a serious job and uh, hangs out with his friends and tries to figure out what's next in life. A premise that, frankly, does not awaken a lot of hope in me, but this was a really well-received movie at the time and it was one I didn't see. And so I'm curious about it. That is Beautiful Girls. And it was number six on my my list. Okay, Matt. Are you ready? I'm ready. Well, give me three new releases. All of my eight ball picks this time. I think this happened recently as well. They're all on Hulu, which I'm finding more and more is where like the movies that are vanishing on Netflix, they're showing up on Hulu. Or at least they are. Their recently added section is a lot more robust than a lot of other sites. They uh, they definitely, I think, did a big investment in movies recently. Because yes. Because I've noticed a lot of good ones popping up. Yes. So first up on Hulu, I have all four Indiana Jones movies from director Steven Spielberg, producer George Lucas, and star Harrison Ford. 
You can bask in the magnificence of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can question some of the creative decisions of Temple of Doom while admiring some of Spielberg's best action sequences. You can uh, revel in the father-son relationship between Ford and Sean Connery in The Last Crusade. And you can finally acknowledge that the Nuke the Fridge sequence is kind of terrific in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes, I like that scene. I'm not going to say anything about the rest of the movie, but I like that scene. Uh, You may not want to watch all of these movies, but if you do, you could have a big old Indiana Jones marathon on Hulu. Next on Hulu, a movie I enjoy that many others do not, Spider-Man 3, the final film in the first Spider-Man series of movies. This was Sam Raimi's last Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, doing battle with the likes of uh, James Franco's New Goblin, Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman, Topher Grace's Venom. It is overstuffed, too many villains, it's messy, but there's a lot to like here, particularly if you are a really hardcore Sam Raimi fan like I am, and you just are on the wavelength of his wacky sense of humor. This is definitely like the silliest of his Spider-Man movies. I've written a whole piece about why I like it, which you can find at Screen Crush. So if you're curious why I'm recommending this one, just do a Google search for that. You'll find it. Spider-Man 3 on Hulu. Finally, also at Hulu, the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennett and Matthew McFadden as Mr. Darcy. It's directed by Joe Wright, who's made Atonement and Hannah and Anna Karenina and Pan. I never saw Pan. I think this is my favorite of his movies. Actually, I know it. It's my favorite of his movies, and I'm not a Jane Austen expert, but it's one of my favorite Jane Austen movies as well. Uh, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden, they're both really good. The cast also includes Donald Sutherland, Tom Hollander, Rosamund Pike, Jenna Malone, Judi Dench. That is a good cast. It is Pride and Prejudice. It is available on Hulu. All right. Well, how about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first comes from longtime listener Joe in Astoria. He writes, hey, Matt Nelson, I'm going to try to write a shorter recommendation Uh, than I've been doing lately. It won't be easy because I'm recommending It's a Wonderful Life, a movie with both a tremendous amount of nostalgic attachment for me and also a lot of deeper and weightier personal feelings I've attached to it as I've grown up and have come to understand it's often dark themes in new ways. In short, I'm just going to say this. Over and over again, Jimmy Stewart in the role of George Bailey both demonstrates with his actions and powerfully explicates with his words the values of community feeling and taking care of each other when we need a hand that we're going to need so badly as we head into the next four years. Hopefully in our darkest times of greatest need, uh, the community will be there for us to Happy New Year from Joe and Astoria. Very well said. And that's a, one of my all-time favorite movies. It's a Wonderful Life. And next we've got an email from Brent Murphy in Thornton, Colorado. And Brent writes, I'm about two episodes behind, so I'm not sure if you guys have talked about this yet, but it sounds right up Matt's alley. It's a documentary called Electric Boogaloo, the wild, untold story of Canon Films. It just showed up on Netflix. It's a pretty fascinating story and a look behind the scenes of what are most likely some of Matt's favorite films. Take care. That's from Brent in Thornton, Colorado. Uh, I have seen Electric Boogaloo. It is right up my alley, and it is a fun documentary. It's about Canon Films, the fascinating uh, company behind, yes, uh, some movies that I quite like, some others I like less, but it is a very interesting company with a very interesting history. And it's a good documentary. I'm not sure if we have ever recommended it. I think it might have been a, a behind-the-eight-ball pick at some point. I'm not positive. But it is worth watching. Electric Boogaloo, the wild, untold story of canon films on Netflix. Okay. One from your my list. You gave me number 11. And number 11 on my, 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 my list right now is Fantasia from 1940. The original Fantasia, widely regarded as Disney's animated masterpiece or one of their masterpieces. You know, it's got the different short cartoons, each set to classical music, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is in there. 
I saw it as a kid. I have not seen this movie as an adult in its entirety. And so it's one that when I saw it was added to Netflix a while ago. And uh, when I saw that, I said, you know, I, I should watch Fantasia really, you know, reckon with it and think about it. Uh, it was I had I, not that long ago read this really long and interesting biography of Walt Disney, which is another reason why I wanted to watch it, because there's a lot in that book about the making of Fantasia, which was not easy. So. Yeah, that's one I should. I really should uh, take some time to watch that one. Maybe in January, which is a little little quiet for good movies. Maybe I'll have some time to set aside and watch Fantasia on Netflix. All right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We've got a little bit of a theme. We've got recent horror films as our theme. Three recent horror films. Some intriguing options here. I have the first one. It's called The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is available right now for rent. It stars Emile Hirsch and Brian Cox as father and son coroners. That old chestnut. (laughs) Seen it once. I've seen it a million times. Dad and son coroners. They experience supernatural phenomena while examining the body of an unidentified woman. I've heard very good things about this one. It played at Fantastic Fest, which I did not get to go to last year, which I was very bummed about. But it did very well there. And, uh, yeah, it's just a movie that I missed, and I'm looking forward to checking out. I've heard Brian Cox is really good in it as well. That it, and, you know, and he's, like, in it, in it. It's not like a brief little appearance. He's got a pretty substantial role. So, yeah, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, that is option one, available for rent. Option two is a film that will be on Netflix on January 7th. So it's not on there yet as of this recording, but will be very soon. It is Under the Shadow. This is Babak Anvari's directorial debut, a horror film set in Tehran in the 1980s uh, during the Iran-Iraq War involving a, the haunting by a jinn. And uh, this is particularly a movie about a mother and daughter who are left behind in the city when the husband is drafted out to the the front. And it it reminds me of the Babadook a bit. There's a lot of kind of maternal anxiety and bleeding into uh, this this kind of potentially supernatural event. Uh, I thought it was a really neat movie and one that I wish was discussed more. I feel like after being well-received at Sundance, it kind of came and went in theaters. Yeah, it didn't seem to make a big impact, uh, and certainly not in the way like The Babadook did. Right. Uh, I, I missed it. I haven't seen it. Um, I've heard great things about it. I've heard the comparison to The to the Babadook, which actually I'm not a huge fan of. I remember. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of that. But I, I'm really curious to see this, so I I'm, I'm, would be very happy if this won. Yeah. And what's the third pick? Our third pick is another recent horror film. This one is available on both Netflix and Hulu. It's called They Look Like People. This one premiered at the Slamdance Film Festival, where it won a special jury award. The plot description is, While visiting an old friend in New York City, a man begins receiving eerie phone calls that warn him something evil is about to happen. Allison, you had heard about this one, right? Yeah, and I think someone might have sent us a recommendation uh, before about this, but it's one that I'd heard kind of floating around on the, the horror film Circuit. circuit yes and heard good things about all right so that is option number three they look like people which is a good title and it is available on netflix and hulu 
Okay, so which of these horror films should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can always enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, January 9th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. Give us a follow if you have not already. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on January 17th, uh, Sundance permitting. Mm. I haven't actually checked out those dates yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure to, it out. We'll figure that out. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer. And again, follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from both ourselves and from you, the SVU listeners. For FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.